2: I am actually reminded of a moment years and years ago where we did a radio show from a woodland trail. And my son, Joey, was with us as we were getting set up. And we walked into out of this woodland tra- trail and there were all these piles of equipment and big spools of cable and stuff. And he looked at it and he looked at us and he said, who said it's going to be a good idea? Uh, and this the question to ask about the done for the second straight has asked two stalwart readers of books, especially readers Trump-related book, to bliss their way through in 24 to 30 hours, uh, the new Woodward book. We did it with fear when that came out a few years ago. And now we've done it with rage, which dropped around midnight uh, yesterday. Uh, and so joining us to uh, once again waltz our way through another Woodward look at Trump uh, are Susan Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, most recently of *Frog Hollow: Stories of, from an American Neighborhood*, now out in paperback, uh, and I think it's like running neck and neck with the right now. Uh, and, I think not. Uh, actually, boy, he kind of stole the title for your auto, your next autobiographical book, but. Um, <laughs> But you can't copyright that. The person you hear chuckling uh, is Jacques Lamar, playwright and the director of client services at Buzz Engine. Uh, I said something before the news about how I was going to be on by phone Then we sort of think we might have fixed the problem. So I'm going to talk this way for a while and you might hear me to break up Jacques will scene from one of his plays while I get on a different mode of actions. Also joining us. David Adams, reviews editor at Publishers Weekly, because we want to just begin by saying or talking a little bit uh, about the the phenomenon that a good word book like this and the stir that it is. So, uh, uh, first of all, maybe you get going, but first thing we should talk about a little bit with both you and our other guests is just this landscape of Trump-related books. I mean, you know, every presidency produces a series of books, but I think we're we're in, you know, unusually fertile country, aren't we, just in terms of the sheer number of Trump books there are?
3: Absolutely. Uh, I, I cannot think of another administration where uh, in the middle of it so many books have come out, so many tell-alls. Uh, I think that has Something to do with just the rate of turnover
2: in the administration. You know, if, as soon as someone heads out the door, uh, it seems like they get signed up by a publisher. Right. So, uh, uh, slide of of books here, and are actually our, our other panelists have read some of them. So now, who's
4: Jacques? Which ones have you read recently? Um, I am almost done with the Michael Cohen book, Disloyal. Uh, I'm uh, probably about. Two-thirds of the way through Mary Trump's book, uh, I, I um, started reading The Art of Her Deal, the Melania Trump book, but it's very boring. Uh, and um, I also started but have not finished uh, John Bolton's book, in uh, The Room Where It Happens.
2: <laughs> all right. So, um, and Susan, you, I know that you've you tackled the Mary Trump book too,
0: right? I've read all of them but the Melania book, which I'm, I'm just not going to do.
2: Well, there's no such thing as reading all of them. I've got a list of them in front of
0: me here. Name <laughs> and, them. Yeah. <laughs> Go so, ahead. Um,
2: so, well, maybe we will. But so, and, and David, you also ha- have read a, a bunch of these. I don't know. Does, d- d- has any of them and I should say that, let's see, I've read, well, I've read A Very Stable Genius by uh, Phil Rucker and Carol Lenning. I don't know what else I've read. I read The Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green. So, but um, ha- have any really stood out for you before, before we get to the Woodward thing, David, w- w- have any of them really been memorable for you? Yeah, I, I think the the new uh, Jeffrey Tubin book, uh, True Crimes and Misdemeanors,
3: uh, if I'm getting the title right, um, was an excellently reported, you know, look at the, the Russia investigation, the Clinton email investigation, uh, how all those things tie together. Uh, and the Mary Trump book, um, which was, I found rather grim and, and, and melancholy, but um, offered to me real insight into, um, you know, the forces that made Trump, the, the, the personal relationships that made him.
2: Um, so I want to actually go back to the other panelists. I mean, so uh, you, Susan, you've read the Mary Trump book and Jacques here a little way through it. Um, react to what David said. Did you find it a, a kind of wintry, frosty, Ibsen-like uh, look at the the Trumps?
0: <laughs> Most definitely. I, I think she touched on things that other books, or she wrote about things that other books touched on, his father, the family relationships that... Um, I hadn't read anywhere else. So yeah, I would say definitely. And it was, it was dark.
2: I don't know how much of it you you read, but the Mary
4: I'm probably about two thirds of the way through. And um, uh, there is a lot about it that's very informative. At a certain point, it gets, uh, for a short book, kind of surprisingly repetitive. Um, and much of the book is spent um, with her doing kind of, Armchair psychoanalysis of of uh, her grandparents, her father, and uh, Donald Trump. So um, it's not entirely rich in the kind of storytelling I would have hoped for someone who had proximity uh, through family. But um, but it's it's very well written and it's smart.
2: So uh, David, uh, first of all, well maybe we can all talk a little bit about this. But um, as far as rage goes. Maybe before we get into our assessment of it, I guess from a publisher's weekly point of view, we probably don't know too much about sales in in as much as it's only really been for sale for less than 48 hours.
3: No, uh, not yet. Um, Interestingly, uh, Simon & Schuster, the publisher, um, the day after Fear published uh, two years ago in 2018 put out early sales numbers. I think they had it at 750,000 copies across all formats, audiobook, ebook, e-book and print and everything. Um, this time, they have not done so, uh, and I'm not quite sure why that is. Uh, it, it could be just that if they wait a week, they, the numbers will get bigger um, by the end of the first week that FEAR was on sale. I think they had it at over a million copies all across all formats, and it was you know, the biggest selling first week sales in their history.
2: Yeah, I mean, in a way, I think the market is so glutted now; it might be hard to 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 replicate uh, a feat like. That. Well, I, I want to hear from all, and want to hear from me too. Uh, what <laughs> thought of this book? As a book, to get started, um, I don't, I don't even remember fear all that clearly, so I'm not going to ask you to compare the two books, fear and rage.
0: But but how did rage work for you? Um. Well, we were talking before the show started, and I agree with you, Colin. There were there were very distinct sections in the book, so that it was almost like several books at once, and I'm sorry to steal this from you, but um, there was a lot of repetitive information to me that already appeared in fear. It almost felt felt like fear, too, and then it went off into the COVID virus, which was interesting, but... Um, there was a great review in the New York Times this morning about how Bob Woodward is bringing traditional journalism to someone who is absolutely not traditional, and he kept asking him these questions that, and he didn't get answers to them. So that I, as the reader, was left every bit as frustrated as when I watch interviews on television um, and 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 hear Trump not answer questions and not see the follow-up or the follow-up is ignored it and i just i ended the book frustrated
2: um how how about you how did it work as a book
4: um you know i I mean he he's obviously a very gifted writer so it it moves along uh you know unlike say the bolton book which reads almost like bolton's daily journal Mm -hmm. um and so, you know, uh, as, as Susan said, there is a sense of kind of chunks to the book, the first part really kind of focusing on Mattis, Tillerson, Coates, uh, et cetera, other than the, you know, the prologue. Um, but I, I find when it really turns into uh, Trump and Woodward actually engaging this, the stuff that's based on the 18 interviews, it becomes much more interesting. And the coronavirus section, as Susan mentioned, is um, is very compelling, especially because we're still living in this moment.
2: Yeah. You know, um, David, at the beginning of the the book, I found my I actually checked once to make sure that I had rage and not fear because this whole opening section in which he has this, you know, angelic chorus of Tillerson and Coates and Mattis uh, as these grown-ups who are interesting interested from time to time in saving uh, Donald Trump from himself or us from Donald Trump, although they don't really do very much. They catch each other's eyes across conference tables. And, and one thing that I find myself wondering about is just because of the proliferation of these uh, Dwight Garner from the New York Times had a great line. He was actually reviewing Inside the NRA, uh, which is Joshua Powell's new book. Uh, and he says, which belongs to a quickly brimming library of for volumes who've been exposed to the worst of the right and of Trump. Now he's a singing insider in the year of the singing insider, a missed chorus performing a cappella around a trash can fire. Well... You can't beat that for a sentence. But um, but David, I find myself just thinking I'm getting a little tired of all these people who are so eager to tell us about the dysfunction they saw in the Trump administration after not really having done very much about it at the time. I, I feel like I don't need any more of those reports.
3: Yeah, I I I would feel tend to agree with that. Uh, I I think you often see people, you know, after they've they safely left um talking about how they went into it with the intention to control and and be a good influence on Trump but um but but failed, you know. One thing that surprised me, or I thought was was strange in the opening sections of of Rage was uh Dan Coates' his wife and her role in the book. She uh both convinced him to talk to go into the administration and then was, you know, mortified by it. Um, so when, I mean, when you add that, you know, the kind of uh, somewhat self-serving portraits these figures give plus their the big advances, you know, that they received. I mean, I think John Bolton was rumored to get $2 million, although that is seems to be in pretty clear jeopardy. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't leave the best taste in one's mouth.
2: So we should talk a little bit uh, uh, while we still have, David, about the thing that obviously has the most news. Uh, and that is uh, a conversation in particular, a conversation on February 7th, um, where Donald Trump talked to uh, Bob Woodward. We should just sort of say by way of setting the scene too, one of the oddities of this book is not only was Bob Woodward able to obtain opportunity talk to Donald Trump, but in very in a very sort of typical Trump fashion. after a while, he just started calling Woodward. He felt like it absolutely no warning whatsoever so that Bob Woodward winds up using the word unexpectedly many times to describe his uh, calls from Donald Trump. So uh, here's a little bit uh, of what came out in that process. Cat?
5: It goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things. Right. But the air, you just breathe the air. and That's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. This is more deadly. This is five per you know this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know so this is deadly stuff. Well, I think Bob really to be honest with sure, you Sure, I want you to I be. wanted to uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, I... Because I don't want to create a panic. And Bob, it's so easily transmissible, you wouldn't even believe it.
1: I know. It's I
5: it... mean, you can you can be in the room. I was in the White House a couple of days ago. A meeting of 10 people in the Oval Office, and a guy sneezed innocently, not a horrible, you know, yes. just a sneeze. The entire room bailed out, okay, including <laughs> me, by the way.
2: So, so David, this has kind of turned into a, a top-line part of, of the Woodward rage story, and the questions have been, Woodward owe us something. He, he knew something that we didn't know pretty much is Bob Woodward's stock and trade. That's what he's got to sell uh, at the bookstalls. So um, I don't know, David, give me your reaction to this whole question of did Woodward hang on to this information too long?
3: Well, um, you know, I think it's interesting if if you remember with the last book, um, they used kind of the same publicity playbook Uh, about a week before it came out, they released a tape of Woodward talking to Trump and Trump complaining about not being told by his staff that Woodward wanted to interview him Uh, and that generated a fair amount of hype at the time. Uh, This time they actually you know he went on the record and this the same sort of of, uh, publicity uh, approach generated so much more um, uh, you know frenzy as it was designed to do. Uh, I I think there is an argument to be made um, that what Woodward is actually reporting, uh, you know, was in the news at the time. Uh, it was being covered that um, Trump was not being informed of, or that Trump was uh, being informed of the dangers that that evidence was out there, but he was downplaying them. I mean, the difference obviously is that here he he admits it, uh, I, and I think that. Um, you know, Woodward needed time to check his sources, do the background reporting, um, you know, gather all the information he could, which slowed things down. Um, and at the same time, the Daily News was covering the issue. So, you know, I, I think it's it's an interesting topic. Um, I'm not sure there's a clear answer. Uh, I, I definitely think it will help to, to drive interest in sales of the book.
2: <laughs> there's always that. Jacques, how about you? How, how do you how do you feel uh, about whatever Woodward's responsibility might have been?
4: Well, you know, it uh, I mean, it kind of harkens a little bit back to, uh, you know, like with this conversation in particular, when I was um, reading the Bolton book, and you know, this is probably going to make Susan Campbell shudder, people won't be able to see it on the radio, but in some ways, Trump appears in the Bolton book slightly smarter than you would think. And more knowledgeable about stuff than he portrays when he goes on camera or on the radio and speaks in very confusing sound bites. And so, um, you know, it wasn't entirely surprising to me to hear Trump admit that it was more dangerous than he was, you know, than he was portraying to the public. Um, I'm not sure if that information came out two months ago that it would have changed anything. I think Trump is, you know, he's known to lie, he's intractable, and his, his uh, base is going to believe whatever he says. So I'm not sure that being served these sound bites or this information two months ago would have really, you know, or even, even five months ago would have really changed anything.
2: So let me go to the person with the seminary training now here, because Susan, it does seem to me. Hey,
4: a, I have that, too. You did, too.
2: <laughs> I, yours is so long.
4: Oh,
2: it was like a whole we've had Vatican, too, since you've you had your seminary training, haven't we? So um, so, um, Susan, um, you know, there's sort of different questions here, right? There's sort of a really fundamental kind of moral question, whether you, you know something, maybe it could save even one life, you know, presumably, you, you, unless there's some enormous counterposed uh, reason, you, you should share it. And then there's the other question about, you know, really would this have made any difference or, or would it have been kind of a 20 news site It's just like another Donald Trump's, different from when he seems to have said about it on other occasions. I find myself trying to investigate both of them at the same time. And it's hard, but I know you can do. Yeah.
0: Yes, because I'm a fundamentalist. So there's black, there's white. It's easy. Um, I do think regardless of what you think the reaction would be or should be, that you do have an obligation to share information when you get it. I, I listened to Bob Woodward explain on NPR why he didn't share that information. And I, I'm, I'm, forgive me, Bob, I'm not clear on his explanation that it was something he thought that Donald Trump was referring to China. Uh, but then the next month, Donald Trump talked about the COVID 19 here. So I, I feel as a journalist that you do have an obligation to share the information, particularly in situations like this. The pandemic has been fraught with misinformation, particularly from the White House. So if Bob Woodward knew this, even though he's not reporting for the Washington Post, at his heart, he's a news gatherer. And I really wish he would have considered sharing what he knew when he knew it.
2: You know, I, because I started just... Reading through the context, trying to figure out the first thing we should say is he can't on February 8th because he doesn't even know whether it's true. You know, like I mean, is is things about the virus? He's long possibilities, full of it here, so you can't put that out. I, and I sort of figured out if he was, if Woodward was ever going to share what he got on February 7th, it would be on February 28th. On that date, acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney says the media is exaggerating the threat of coronavirus. Quote, they think this will bring down the president. That's what this is all about, he says, praising the administration's actions, blah, 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 blah. So at that moment, I think if you're Bob Woodward and you step forward and say, this is going to be in my book, but I need to share it now. Trump knows that the media isn't exaggerating. Here he is on tape saying this um right. you know that, that's good susan that one of us do right
0: why why not share it then when when donald trump is comparing the the coronavirus to seasonal flu and it's going to magically disappear and when it gets warm it's going to kill all the viruses um boy sitting on that it looks like if he's sitting on that so he'll sell more books i i don't admire that Right. But, so, you know, it's
4: like th- these tapes have come out and then Trump does his town hall last night and he downplays the virus again.
2: Right. And after and, saying, it, you know, oh, yeah,
4: that, that it's nonsense or whatever. He, he then downplays it and says it's just going to go away.
2: Right. I mean, people will still go to indoor rallies no matter what. So right. um, anyway, so we have to take a break here. I think I'm going to have to switch over to phone. I'm being told uh, David Adams. Is- news editor of Publishers Weekly. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back with more Susan and Jacques after this. Welcome back. I'm on the phone now. I have fears about this too, but welcome back uh, to the hardest working book club on the planet. (laughs) This is Susan Campbell, Pulitzer prize winning journalist and author, most recently of frog hollow stories from an American neighborhood. And as a player of client services at BuzzEngine, all of us to the best of our abilities have binged Bob Woodward's book rage uh, since it dropped at midnight on Tuesday morning. Um, I should also say just by way of context here that since our last uh, book club meeting for the book fear I have had the opportunity to interview Bob Woodward on stage at the Bushnell in front of a large audience a little bit so you you may hear me say something about that uh, as we kind of go along here um so um yeah you know maybe we should just quickly say something about you know the circumstances uh, under which we're doing this
0: um There's a pandemic.
2: Correctly. What?
0: There's a pandemic. Is that what you mean?
2: Well, no, I just mean what it's like to try to read a book under such deadline pressure.
0: Um,
2: You know, it it is a strange um, thing to kind of have to do to get ready and to get ready to do it on a radio show. It's not like you're going to curl up and and relax with the book. So now we have brought it all the way up. So, Susan, uh, yeah, just talk about the experience of – it's like being a goose being, you know, force fed or something.
0: <laughs> well, um, I woke up at five yesterday and started reading <laughs> on my Kindle. Then C's are my days to help my nine-year-old grand twins do their schoolwork. So imagine how involved I was there. It was mostly granny's reading, do it yourself. Um, I had to bury some ducks. Anyway, that's another story. Then I put it on oh Audible God. and listened to it. Uh, parts of it I've heard or read twice. Um, yeah, and when I finished, I had to take a walk because there was a part of me that was just so fried, and a part of me was disappointed. I don't know what I was looking for—something new—and um, it's—it's it's a good book. By all means, buy it. But these are more. This is more of the same.
2: So Jacques, I'm picturing your house as this kind of curiosity shop piled up with. Partially read uh, Trump books. You you had quite a list of them at the beginning there. So what did what did this experience uh, add to your overall? I, I, actually, I should ask you a different question. What drives you to do this? Why would you try to read John Bolton's
4: book? Um, you know, I mean, the thing. Is, uh, uh, I mean, maybe some of it is the kind of liberal. I want my my views and and beliefs to be reinforced. Um, uh, some of it is if I buy it, then hopefully they'll keep putting out more of this stuff that will, you know, uh, en- you know, encourage people who to you know think more critically about him. Um, and you know, and the thing is, you know, he's he. Uh, you can't look away sometimes. I mean, that's where he's masterful. And I, I have to say, the the book that I've enjoyed the most, um, and not necessarily enjoyed, the book that I. Um, have gotten the most out of has actually been Michael Cohen's book disloyal (laughs) Um, because he is um, not a third party to this stuff. He's not, you know, dealing with sources. He's in the room. He's very open about what he's done that uh, is wrong. That is illegal. He's um, contrite to a degree and, um, and talks about uh, the allure of doing wrong for trump and so to me i think um, some of these things like the bolton thing is it it is interesting to me to see how someone goes through day-to-day working that type of job and then trying to work that type of job with you know a, a completely unpredictable uh undisciplined leader and so it's kind of you know i do actually want to continue reading john bolton's book but it it's not a compelling narrative that <laughs> that, that <laughs> Susan seems horrified at the god. No
0: no you're right I tr- um, yeah. I'm uh, trying. I' yeah mean, <laughs>
4: yeah there's there's really it really is his journal um, but there's a certain you know fascination to the aspect of that although I was noting in uh, in rage John Bolton's name doesn't show up until like 200 pages in the book and you're like, where was he when all this stuff was going?
0: Not in the room.
4: Not in the room. (laughs) He's apparently like writing in his uh, princess diary or something during that time. But anyway. Yeah.
2: um, Well, also not talking to Bob Woodward. I mean, look, one of the things that we know now, hard-bitten veterans of this that we are, is there's a huge difference between talking to Bob Woodward and, have, and having other people talk about you to Bob Woodward, which we'll also get to the reason why Trump was more cooperative this time. But I also, you know, Susan, I don't know if you had the same experience that I did, but I found that this book, and, and I, I think it as well, but it's kind of weird jump cuts, you know, like a chapter ends in somebody's living room in Washington and then the next chapter goes in Singapore, that next that he's ready to drop one subject and, and move on to another. Uh, I want to quote either White House centric narratives. narrative threads are dropped and then recovered without any notice of the way the interim. You know, and Susan, I with who he has access to, that he's less good at telling a story and more good at just telling us what somebody told him.
0: Okay, well, here's where um, arrogance comes in, where I, a worm, am going to critique Bob Woodward. (laughs) I hope he doesn't get his feelings hurt. Um, he is To me, he's a very worker-like journalist. He does great research. I don't think anyone's ever gone to him for his writing style, which, again, <laughs> they don't come to me either. I also found his writerly device, The Voice of God, after a while to be pretty off-putting, where it would be, and I appreciate that he was correcting the record, Donald Trump would say something completely tinfoil. And... Um, Bob Woodward would come in, and in fact, this was the case. And I don't know why that that didn't work for me. And and Jacques and I just mentioned this earlier. Um, It also didn't work for me to hear about the relationship between the writer and his subject. Um, I was more intrigued with the letters between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Um, I didn't understand Bob Woodward's talking... To me, incessantly about getting those letters to write about them. I'm going off on a tangent, and I'll stop here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just no, that's okay. the the writing of the book did not intrigue me. the re- The research and the details I found, like Jim Mattis's mother didn't like Donald Trump, I found that interesting.
2: Yeah. Well, we should talk a little bit about three of things since you just opened that Pandora's so um, I think I'll let, let, since you have the great line about it, I'll just stay with you on this, Susan. So one of the things we discover is that that, that Kim wrote Trump, I think 27 letters, um, and, and as fawning as they could possibly be. But I, I think one of the things that you have also felt, and which I think Woodward shares, is that they were, it was a very effective thing to do. But say a little bit more about it.
0: I think... Um the one line that stuck out to me uh, or the one part of the book that really stuck out to me was Woodward's acknowledging that Kim did not write those letters, but someone with a deep understanding of both Donald Trump and the English language knew precisely the tone to hit precisely the spot on Donald Trump to rub that would be as effective as it possibly could be with this mercurial unpredictable man. And, 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 That was the part of the book I was listening to, and I kept thinking of Victorian letters between women, and people read them now and think, were they closer than friends? That's what those letters sounded like. Now, I don't have access to a lot of diplomatic dispatches, so this was one of the few times I've gotten to hear parts of letters that go back and forth being lifted, and I came away from that thinking, (laughs) this... They, they were good. They were, those letters from, from North Korea were incredibly well done, and they worked perfectly. I would have liked to yeah, have seen the answers.
2: Uh, before we get to Jacques on this, let's uh, uh, go to uh, cut three, uh, cat. Let's hear uh, President Trump and Bob Woodward discussing North Korea.
5: Remember this. When you take over and I really mean this too, you take over a country and you're twenty five years old and you survive, you got you know, millions of people that are all smart as hell and energetic, you know, the energy's in growth. Well they show you
1: the reports about those camps in North Korea. Oh President Bush once told me about Kim's father, Kim Jong-il, he said, I loathe Kim Jong il because of what he's doing to his people.
5: Yeah. And, and you know what that attitude got him nothing in the meantime they built a huge nuclear force during those two last two administrations they haven't done it during me now you know you hear reports that they'll start again but for three years i gave nothing is he giving you You know they would say president trump agreed to meet what the f- it's a meeting i agreed to meet Why? you mean instead of Did you think sitting home reading of- your book i i i met
2: So, um, so Jacques, you know another thing that we're hearing here too. Woodward periodically throughout the books will try to press Trump on a kind of a moral question, uh, <laughs> and it's kind of it's all, you know, how Trump processes a question like that. And I think you you hear it there, right? I mean, he he cites Bush, and and Trump says, "Well, what did he what did he get out of it?" Um, but I just I, I'd love to hear your reaction to the whole. Trump Kim
4: relationship i the the letters there are so many lol moments in those letters uh, i i was literally like reading them to my husband after i was laughing out loud some of the things particularly from kim jong un's uh, lackey whoever wrote those letters to trump um, you know that you know it, they're And Woodward says they're almost like romantic letters in a certain regard. And then I I just um, found this thing that was actually, I think, uh, in a conversation that the two had a signing ceremony or something. And uh, Kim is uh, ready to give up one of his nuclear sites. I'm now quoting the book. But he had five. Uh, Listen, one doesn't help and two doesn't help and three doesn't help and four doesn't help, Trump said. Five does help. But it's our biggest, Kim said, referring to Beyond uh, uh, Center. Yeah, it's also your oldest, Trump said, because I know every one of the sites. I know all of them better than any of my people know them. You understand that. Kim would not budge from his position. Do you ever do anything other than send rockets up to the air, Trump asked Kim. Let's go to a movie together. Let's play a round of golf. <laughs> I, it's so bizarre. And like, you know, the, the ego stroking and and whatnot, and, you know, Trump, you know, insisting that they're friends and that, you know, that Kim Jong-un never smiled before until he met Trump and that no one's ever been, you know, into North Korea before. He's the first person ever, which is not true. And I mean, it's just, it, it, there are a lot of bizarro world moments in this book, but the Kim Jong-un stuff. Uh, as far as I've gotten, uh, you know, full disclosure, I've not finished the book yet. The Kim Jong Un stuff is truly the most bizarre world.
2: So I, I do also think that as we go along here, Woodward is more and more, Susan, a, a character in the book, um, and, um, and and what he does occasionally is he will try to press Trump a little bit on. And you know what do you really feel? What's in your heart? You know.
0: What, <laughs> yeah. I, oh my God! Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Right,
2: actually, well, let's play the let's play cut uh, two here, Kat. This is uh, one of the things that the book obviously deals with, or it goes far ahead enough in time to be able to take a look at at the black life uh, Black Lives Matter activities uh, of at least the first half of twenty twenty. So here's Woodward and Trump talking about
1: that. Do you have any sense that that privilege has isolated and put you in a cave to a certain extent? Has it put me and I think lots of white privileged people in a cave and that we have to work our way out of it to understand uh, the anger and the pain particularly black people feel in this country?
5: You no, s- you you really drank the Kool-Aid, didn't you? you listen to you. Wow. No, I don't feel that at all. Do I you it.
1: think there is systematic or institutional racism in this country?
5: Well, I think there is everywhere. I think probably less here than most places or less here than many places.
1: Okay, but is it here in a way that it has an impact on people's lives?
5: I think it is, and it's unfortunate, but I think it is.
2: So, Susan, somewhere in those conversations, there really literally is a place where Woodward tries to get Trump to talk about what's in his heart. You know, he says that's one of the places you have to be reached by this topic. Uh, And it is kind of amazing. I mean, even I I guess we all feel that we know Donald Trump pretty well and all of his oddities and eccentricities and his attention deficit problems. And, you know, even so, I'm occasionally amazed by him and his inability to take on any question like this. How do you really feel about something like this? It it still caught me a little bit by surprise. I don't know. Am I have, am I just sort of naive and innocent here?
0: Yes. He also, Woodward <laughs> tried to go back and he asked it again in the book and still came away. To me, getting an answer to a question like that from Donald Trump is like nailing jello to a wall, you can keep asking the question. um, And I always appreciate when reporters do just keep coming back until, okay, if he's going to get backed into a corner and say something outlandish, there's your answer. But to ask, how do you feel about something to Donald Trump seems like a fool's errand. I don't know that you're ever going to get an answer.
2: Right, I will say, I will actually make one reference to my uh, chance to talk to Woodward, you know, He's sort of a weird guy in that his social skills are a little odd. And I think that's something that allows him to do stuff. Like one story he tells with relish was, you know, he thought he was done for the day on one of the days he was researching, I think it was fear. And it's like 10 o'clock at night, ten fifteen, and he realizes he's in the neighborhood of somebody who refused to talk to him once before, and he decides he's going to call that person. And rather than go home, he's thinking, I could go home, but I could call because I'm pretty close by. And he calls that person and he somehow or other gets them to let him, you know, into the house at 1030 at night. And then that person reveals that there's stuff up in the attic in boxes that would be of interest to Woodward. And then he gets them to either go into the attic with him, or I mean, it sounds like a slasher movie. But, um, but, you know, he kind of has that ability to hang in there. And bug somebody longer than most. Don't you think that's all journalists?
0: Don't you think every journalist you know who stayed in the business longer than two weeks has that deficit (laughs) where we just don't have the social niceties? Or there's something (laughs) off about us, and we don't worry about being rude. Calling someone at ten o'clock and talking your way into their home sounds like criminal behavior unless you're a journalist. Then you're a good one. Yeah. I guess
2: that's true. I don't know. I mean, I certainly have lots of deficits, but I, maybe not ones that I can turn to my advantage the way Woodward can. Um, um,
4: all right. So Jacques, did you want to weigh in one last uh, thing about this before we go to break? Um, yeah. I, I, you know, it's interesting. The the things that um, Susan has found frustrating with, with um, those sections where, where, uh, you know, you um, know, Woodward keeps going after these, these questions like a dog with a bone while realizing that, you know, he will never get a straight answer out of Donald Trump or, or an answer that's believable. Um, I think as a playwright, the sense of dialogue and back and forth is actually really interesting to me. Um, and it, it probably makes for annoying uh, reading for a reporter who just, you know, wants to hear a question asked and a question answered. Um, but I think, uh, you know, seeing how dogged both men are at trying to get at and avoid the truth at the same time, or whether or not Donald Trump and what he's saying in his mind is the truth, uh, I think is incredibly revealing. And I think, um, you know, it's something that comes out in Michael Cohen's book. And I think Mary Trump's book as well is that, you know, at a certain point, Trump will adopt, you know, his lie as the truth. Like he will come to believe it, uh, as if it's the truth. And so, uh, you know, when he's, when Woodward is, you know, trying to pin him down on saying a president in theory should not ask a foreign entity to do an investigation against, uh, against a, um, uh, uh an electoral uh, opponent. Um, you know, uh, Trump refuses refuses to just answer that 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 hypothetical, and he just keeps going back to you know I'm trying to stop corruption in the Ukraine. <laughs> That's his right. I mean, truth. There,
2: there definitely are stories that he comes to believe. I mean, for example, he claims that he was the only person in the room of twenty one people, the only one yeah. who wanted to ban to, to uh, travel from China I and mean, Woodward is easily able to document that like half the people in the room were trying to talk Trump into that position, but you can tell he's just said it so many times he absolutely has you know taken it as truth and and maybe we all do that a little bit, but he does it a lot All right, let's grab a quick break here. We'll be back with more of Susan and Jacques Instead of what makes us
1: All
2: right, hi, this is Colin, I'm back. As you can maybe tell, I've been having some big technical problems at my house. Hey, Comcast, I need help here. Uh, At this point, I'm actually standing in my open doorway to see if my cell phone signal will work a little bit better here. But meanwhile, uh, the hardest working book club in America, Susan Campbell, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the author most recently of Frog Hollow, Stories from an American Neighborhood. Uh, Jacques Lamar, playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine. Uh, so our time, uh, remaining is brief. I also have to thank Kat Pastor and Gina Matruda, who've done everything in their power on their end to make this work. Uh, and to obviously Jonathan McPants for producing this particular episode. I have no idea where I will be in my life tomorrow. I'll give them what today has been like. But so, Jacques, one thing I want to talk about here is the whole question of Trump's level of cooperation. I mean, I think we can understand maybe some smart person said you'd probably be better off if you talked to Woodward but he doesn't just talk to Woodward he talks to him 18 times including some unbidden phone calls as I mentioned before I mean Jacques any thoughts about sort of what Trump's motivation
4: would be here you know I actually have been thinking about that I think part of it is he thinks he's really charming And so because he didn't cooperate, uh, you know, with fear, he got what he thought was a bad book. So I think, um, you know, he thinks his ability to kind of charm, uh, Woodward would shine through. And, you know, there are certain points saying, Oh, well, you'll probably write a bad book, you know, which I think is kind of like a little goading, like, you know, you know, do better than I expect of you. Uh, And then, you know, I think one of the most telling moments is when Woodward is in the Oval Office and Trump has larded his desk with all of these props, Um, you know, his letters from Kim Jong-un, a blow up of a photo of him and Kim Jong-un. And and he says, you know, when when I have visited with presidents in, in this office, you know, there were no props involved. It was like, I was able to have a conversation with them. And Trump puts on a show. And I think part of it is um, also because it's another white male. And I think he feels like he's got, you know, kind of this buddy-buddy shorthand that, you know, that will work with another older white male. And um, he he misread the room.
2: Right. Well, there's also that sense that presidents come and go for 50 years and Bob Woodward is still there. So there's, you know, the question of who the permanent government is. But, uh, you know, Susan, I love Jacques' theory. Ross Garber, who's handled a lot of impeachment cases, says, never let your client testify because your client's a politician and he always thinks he's more charming and persuasive than he really is. But what's weird about this is the other thing that Jacques was just referring to, which is this kind of weird metacognition that Trump does in these conversations where he goes, this is probably going to be a terrible book. You're probably going to screw me. And then you really wonder, you know, what is going through Trump's mind here?
0: <laughs> May I never know. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of the the whiny victimhood that he also encases himself with um, where no one understands my genius. I think that plays into it as well. Um, I I do question him ever giving any interviews. They don't work out for him unless it's a fawning Sean Hannity Um, What's going through his mind I think is exactly what what Jacques said. It's it's we're two white guys talking here So we get it right we can speak in code and that was a miscalculation somewhat Um, The idea that I I do believe Donald Trump thinks he's incredibly charming and that he can charm anyone and that's been misproven but Truth is what you accept and perceive as truth, and that is his truth, that he'll, he'll be able to pull this one out of the fire because he is Donald J. Trump.
2: Yeah, I'm, we're going to have to go here. Uh, yeah, there is sort of an odd thing, too. They talk about their ages a lot. Uh, Woodward's actually a bit older than Trump, and he clearly thinks that he's evolved and changed and has engaged in some reflection. Um, Having spent some time now with Bob Woodward, I think that's kind of an open question, but I know what he means anyway, and he keeps, you know, sort of citing his advanced age and wondering if Trump can ever come to any kind of epiphanies. Well, good luck with that. Well, I'm sorry about the technical problems today. I love my panelists so much, Jacques Lamar uh, and Susan Campbell. I'd love to be talking to them on a perfect connection, but but kudos to everybody, particularly the -the behind-the-scenes people who really hung in here and uh, made this show work. And we will be back with. We're we're going to do a second show about masks. I was never happy with our first show about face masks. So, assuming I'm still alive tomorrow and can connect with the world, we'll do a show about masks. But thanks for listening today, and thanks to my guests and producers and the rest of the people who helped so much.